let me see, maybe I can move this closer, but I'll have to adjust the volume a bit. It's ludicrous. Look at this. That's too fancy. But it, like, why do you have it? Um, just because there are some other recordings I'm going to start doing for the church. Oh. And it's a bit of tech that I've thought I should probably have for the next little while, since it seems like increasingly that's part and parcel of like, like everybody has a podcast. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Comforter. to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we sit down to talk about our experiences and challenges as pastors doing small-town ministry during uncertain times. Join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Listeners, this week we have a guest on the podcast. I know you just heard a guest episode with Ian talking to Ethan, but we have here with us for this episode, my friend Steve, who I met when I was studying in Scotland. So Steve, will you introduce yourself for us? Yes, happily. Thank you. Uh, My name is Steve and I work at a church in Edinburgh, Scotland, as their youth associate, uh, which when I started was principally a job to do with sort of outreach to teens, but has since changed into sort of youth and family work, which is the kind of work I was familiar with and I've had other experience with earlier in my life. Fun story, when my youth choir visited Scotland when I was in high school, Green Bank was one of the churches that we sang at. So really? Yeah, yeah. So I went to Green Bay, I think for Martin's installation, maybe, or for something else that was happening. And I walked in and I'm like, I have been here before. All of this has happened before. And it took me a while to realize that's what it was. Uh, so like the room that y'all use as your youth room was our like staging room for the concert. And I were walking in and being like, I've definitely spent at least half an hour of my life in this space. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Pentland room. Uh, sometimes known as the session room because the session used to meet there. Oh yeah, yeah. Man, that's the that is the funny thing about uh, churches in Scotland and then churches in the U.S. is like everything in Scotland has this long history of things that have happened there, and then places in the U.S. are like, well, we built this about fifty years ago, and we're very dedicated to our parlor. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so let's let's talk. Just give a a story from each of our weeks. Uh, My story from my week this week is that I thought that I had COVID-19 because I was dying from respiratory ailments. And uh, then I, one of my church members is a neighbor to somebody who's just opened up a clinic and they're like, well, you know, you have these symptoms. We're really concerned. You might need to go to the ER. Listen, I'll just call the, the guy who's in charge of the clinic and he'll call you back and get you in with a spot. And I'm like, I don't, I don't need special treatment. Like I just need a test. And he's like, no, 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 no. We'll make sure that he gets you on the list. I'm like, okay, great. So the guy calls me back and we go through the whole thing and he's like, now you do have shortness of breath that if it's severe enough, we're going to send you to the ER. And I was like, okay, because I've never had this before in my life. Uh, And I go in, I get tested. It's like 
a five minute process. It was a drive through testing clinic. It was great. I got my results back the next evening. Everything. I'm fine. I don't have coronavirus. Uh, but then I spent like, after I got the news, I spent the next literal hour telling different people who needed to know that I didn't have coronavirus. Uh, and then we had a church council meeting the next day that I liked cough my whole way through. So it was it's weird that I'm like, I need to have symptoms. So you believe that I'm sick, but that's a pathological thought that I have. So uh, I was very happy to be sick on the call. <laughs> um, but my district superintendent wants to put another church onto my charge. Like we talked about in the past episode and mm -hmm. we approved that. So as long as the Bishop approves, I will have two churches come July. Uh, Ooh. one of which I, I'm going to see if we can meet remotely. They haven't been doing anything since coronavirus started because mm. they don't have the technological infrastructure to do it. Right. Um, and they've had lay uh, preachers. They had a, mm. a retired licensed local pastor. So I don't know how you're licensed if you're retired, that maybe they relicensed this person for a while. And then they had... Um, uh, pulpit supply for however many months before coronavirus hit and then they stopped assigning pastors because you can't meet there and there's no reason to make pulpit supply try to figure out zoom so that was those were like the churchiest things in my week ian and i are going to co-preach on sunday we're going to record that today mostly because i don't know that i can get through a whole sermon while talking uh right. so it's been a we're going to do the um the altar to the unknown God in Acts. Yes. Yeah, I'm right. so excited. Uh, and Ian's actually been to the Areopagus. So I'm going to be oh, like, man. yeah, I'm going to be like, tell us, what, is, what does it look like? What's around? And then I'm going to take over and say whatever I want to say. But for a minute there, I'm going to seem very generous in my sermon. <laughs> uh, so who wants to go next? Anybody else want to jump in with a story? Mm. Yeah, I'm happy to do so. Yeah, let me think. Go for it, Steve. Go for it. A couple of things. Yeah. Um, well, amongst other things, this is utterly unrelated to like work things, but after uh, eight or 12 months uh, and one extended period of this thing being out of stock, I managed to get my hand on a frankly ginormous board game that I've been looking for for a while, which is just like, it's good news, happy story, even though it's like objectively like ludicrous to buy a board game during a lockdown mm -hmm. when I live by myself. <laughs> It is a game called Twilight Imperium 4th Edition, which is just, it's games that's like almost too large, and that, but that's the sort of appeal for it. Mm -hmm, mm. That's the one that we played when I was visiting with Heather and the Borders. That's true. Yeah, we played um, the 3rd Edition, because I have the 3rd Edition and one of the expansions for it. And the 4th is basically the 3rd Edition, but cleaned up and very nice. Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. We can do a whole episode on like, how board games and gaming has become a part of like youth youth group culture because we played oh, yeah. um killer bunnies a lot in my youth group mm. and it was that was their thing that's what they wanted to do and i kept on calling it exploding bunnies and they corrected me every single time because they love so much. Mm. Um, ethan do you have a fun story past your check-in with ian that you did earlier this week oh gosh i don't i don't know if i've got a fun story i do know that uh, it is the ideal time for me to get out of the church, though, if uh, board game culture is making a comeback in, in the church. Because I, I hate board games with a passion. I don't, hate pe I don't hate people who love board games. My wife is one of those people. 
Um, but like the thought of walking into a youth group and going, Hey, welcome to our youth group. We're going to play this board game. Uh, makes me think how hot do the girls need to be in order to keep me there? <laughs> like, like, because, because oh. I'm certainly, because I'm certainly not there for God. <laughs> like, I'm like, well, this is a youth group. I'm not here to meet Jesus, you know? <laughs> oh, but, uh, but no, I don't think I have a, Steve, that's that's a stupid joke that I, I like to tell because the, <laughs> the joke is the joke is is that I don't believe in God, but that's the joke. That's just the joke. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. Well is is this sort of akin with like uh I, I like to bait people sometimes when I say that I'm uh I'm not let me get it right, because people would say that they're spiritual but not religious. And I tend to say that I'm actually a little more religious than I am spiritual. And you can yes, sort of see people yes. go, Ooh, what does that mean? <laughs> yes, yes, I like that too. I, I, uh, it's like, well, you know, basically what that means is that I don't, I, I I'm not a hippie. <laughs> but, uh, but I no, have I have no feelings, but I go to church. <laughs> yes, that's pretty much right. Um, no, I don't think I have a. I, I'm just, I'm just trying to think for a quick second. I don't think I have a funny kind of ministry story. I'm, uh, you know, I'm still packing up Steve I'm leaving I'm I'm I don't know how familiar you are with what's been what's going on in our podcast or whatever no no oh, yeah oh, I just invited him without telling him no that's no problem so Steve I'm I'm actually leaving being a pastor at the end of this appointment season I'm right I'm uh, uh going back to school I got accepted into a PhD program mm. and, and so I'm dream. I'm really excited and and so it's at the University of Virginia and um, I'm going to be studying. They've got they got a really cool religion program there, and I'm studying. Uh, uh, it's the Christian theological subfield, and so it'll be really it'll be really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm taking a break from being a pastor. I've been a pastor for three years, taking a break from that. And mm-hmm. so it's been fascinating trying to pack up and lead the church, and also transition out of the church in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and so a lot of my recent funny stories, if I have any, have have been, you know, another person calling me to either wish me good luck or to scream at me. Mm. <laughs> Yay! Um, and and sometimes the people. Oh, I do have a funny story that that's kind of that's not super funny, but it's funny for me. Um, <laughs> the appointment list came out. Uh, and had my name on it, you know, like it's saying that I was going unappointed. And so, you know, licensed local pastor, ex United Methodist Church, to unappointed. That's what the list said. And um, so I, I started to get text messages and phone calls from people, from like my colleagues who weren't on, maybe who weren't on Facebook or who didn't see my status, you know, things saying that I was leaving. They were like, what's going on? Are you okay? What's happening? And one of the people that sent me a, a message uh, is a, uh, a colleague of mine who, you know, is, is like super anti-government and anti-vaccine and, and oh. like spent like, a, like the Sunday after the bish- our bishop um, put a kibosh on in-person worship, he posted this big post on Facebook saying that, uh, no, no bishop or government is going to tell him what to do, and he had like worship anyway, and 
exposes people to danger and, and was an awful bad guy. He's, he's a bad dude. And so, and I told him that, like, after he did that, I told him to bash his head against a rock. <laughs> I, I was not having it. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. he, he uh, it's a good biblical threat. But, uh, but anyway, he sent me a message and he was like, he was like, why are you, what's going on? Like, why are you leaving? Why are you going unappointed? And I told him, I was like, well, I'm, I'm going back to school. And his response was, oh, so you're a fucking quitter then. Oh, my God. Whoa, no. And, and, and I told – and my response to him, well, I had to write, type and delete a couple of really bad responses. Sure. Listen here, you motherfucker. <laughs> and I had to, like, delete it. But uh, my response to him eventually was, yeah, I guess so, and you should quit too. And then that was it. <laughs> wow. So that was my fun story. Steve, aren't you glad that you're not in ministry in Pennsylvania right now? <laughs> I mean, well, you see, I mean, in spite, in spite of the fact that I am living in Scotland and I have been here for four years now, I still end up having, like, most of my news diet ends up being stuff in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I want to try and keep abreast of, like, what's going on. So, like, I'm, I'm checking the COVID count day to day, and I'm, like, looking at all these you know, the next news story of the next pastor in some church who's right. decided that like, oh, we're not going to have any, any sort of top down anything authority telling us what to do. Uh, and just the sort of, it's one of these moments where like you start to wonder, I try to wonder what's the, um, what's the like best lingo with which to use in order to sort of actually get them to do what we think would be safest. Hmm. Right, because it seems like the moment the moment we start to say that it's like, oh, the government told you not to meet, you go, all right, well, oh, we're going to do that. Of course, we're going to meet. What do you mean? This is just like back in the time from Christians were martyred, and you're like, hold up now, <laughs> that's that's a little extreme. Right. Um, but nonetheless, there are points where you just I wonder if it would be beneficial in a sort of um, within the Christian household, as it were, to, to, within the family, I guess, to say like something like, guys, do you realize this, this is just hurting your witness? Because that's language they're more familiar with to say, right. it's actually hurting your witness more so than anything else. Um, yeah, I think about that sort of stuff often because, you know, there's so many different kinds of religious language that end up being used, especially within all the different subgroups of Christian thinking and praxis, ways of being church, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I go the opposite route and just want to be like, listen, if you're so worried about the government, you got to wear these face masks because, you know, they're tracking you and the face mask helps to stop it. So that's not helpful. That's the unkind thoughts that I have. Yeah, although even the masks thing, I, I'm, I wonder about because I know like a majority of my friends here are all life science people. Mm-hmm. And so I catch enough details from them about like the failure point of masks, by which I mean like, like one of my friends who's a doctor has said like, yeah, after about 20 minutes, some of the masks don't work any longer because they become moist with your breath. Oh. Oh, right. Shoot. I, like it's one of those things that's obvious once it's sort of said around you. But nonetheless, you know, the, the next thing that I think about then is, well, how many people are sort of wearing a mask because they know they've been told to, but don't necessarily have some of the... Um, immunological background to know like when a mask ceases to be effective. So 
when they need to change or when they actually need a mask versus when they don't necessarily need one. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Cause we, Ian and I went on a walk the other day that I brought my new inhaler on. Uh, and I was like, we're wearing masks. We're out in public. We're going to do it. Um, and Ian's like, you know, we don't have to wear these. And I was like, yes, we do. And he's like, no, when you're outside, it dissipates fast enough. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, there's going to be old people and children. Mm. And I just, we need to, but it was definitely, we were out for more than an hour. So it's good to know that all of the sweat I accumulated did not help anybody at all. It was wasted. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think it's, yeah. And it's one of those things that I'm keenly aware of that I don't know. And of course, Scotland mm -hmm. is, is a very different context, right? So right. here, I think probably from my last grocery trip, maybe two out of 10 people were wearing a mask. Oh, wow. Well, just because there's like, A, we didn't really have the mass migration of people north. Right. right? So That's most true. of the population is in the central band, sort of where there's um, Glasgow and Edinburgh. Uh, and people started to go north because they wanted to get away from population centers and they sort of clamped down on that real quick, mm -hmm. which meant nobody moved anywhere. So there's far less of a spread further north. Um, but even then Scotland itself has comparatively fewer infections so far, but we still are being extraordinarily careful. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, so somewhere in there, there was a good segue into what we're going to talk about in the episode, <laughs> which is, <laughs> Uh, all of us are theology nerds, so if you are here for the practical pastoral stuff, uh, maybe this is the point in time where you start making lunch and pay less attention to us. But we wanted to talk about uh, systematic theology and contemplative practice and how those two interact, the overlap between the two. I find that a lot of people, if you told them... Um, that you are both somebody who reads theologians and somebody who has a contemplative practice, they would not know what to do with you because they think those things don't go together because right. uh, theology is religious, but contemplative practice is spiritual and never do the twain meet. So uh, I, think, I think this is kind of a rich place to dig into because a lot of the, the early church thinkers are both people who are contemplative and uh, who produce not systematic theologies, but like foundational theology. Uh, and Steve threw this topic out here. So Steve, I'm going to let you start. What, what are your thoughts? How do you lay out this? What do you want to talk about? Go. Right. So I'm one of these folk who I think I have been consistently surprised at how much systematic theology has elicited often quite emotional reactions for me. Mm. So starting from that position, it's an easy sell for me to want to get more engaged with the contemplative tradition, recognizing that I am an absolute beginner <laughs> and beginner in the way that like, that's not how some of the contemplative literature with it, they would say, oh, I'm, I'm still a beginner. And you go, yeah, but you've been doing this for 30 years. Right. <laughs> right? No, there, there's one extent to which that is kind of the pious thing that you say, although mm -hmm. even I'm uncomfortable using that language. Um, but I'm still somebody who's deeply, I, I wonder at the point at which those two trajectories, systematics and contemplative practice meet, because a lot of that boils down to this notion that like systematic theology is principally and sometimes exclusively intellectual with mm -hmm. no necessary bearing on how you are in the world. And then that contemplative practice is sort of 
eminently practical in a way. And because of its sort of reliance on silence and not speaking, not having words to use, for example, that seems to sort of conflict with systematic stuff, systematics. Um, and I don't know that that's the case. That's one of those things that people seem, it, it seemed to have been used as an assumption that that's always the case. And I go, well, that's a strange assumption. Why do we think that? Yeah. Why, why has that come to us, to come to this century from all of the centuries that have gone before us? Do you have a regular contemplative practice that you do? I have one or two that are sort of my own. And there's one especially that I do with my youth group on Sunday nights that is actually our closing prayer that um, has very, very few words. It was, it was designed mm. specifically. And I did this long before the lockdown began as a reaction to um, just the sort of hustle and bustle and noisiness of life in my area. And I felt that so many of the teens had so many things on that right. it would have been, it was most advantageous to try and teach them in some way uh, how to actually sit in a bit of genuine actual silence and just sort of be with themselves for a bit. Um, so we had this sort of two-phased prayer where the first half of it, which is anywhere from three to seven minutes, we all sit in silence together. Wow. And like, yeah, the, the whole prompt for that is just to think on, at first it was to think on those things for which you're grateful. Uh, but since the lockdown, it's become those things for which you're grateful, those things that you miss, and those things that leave you frustrated. So it gives okay. folk quite a lot of scope to just sort of feel what's going on. And in the second half, I have a sort of segue point that I think is a useful grounding moment. Uh, and then we sit again in silence. And it's just totally the option of everybody there to say a word or two or three that is, you know, I miss blank. I'm grateful mm -hmm. for blank. And that's it. Like, and then I have my little closing thing that I say. And we've done that for maybe two years now, at least. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm. We're all uh, people who have been impacted by evangelicalism. Did y'all ever do war prayers in any of the groups you've been in? Pardon? War a war prayers. prayer? I've, I've, war. Never, no? I've never heard of it. I've actually never heard of that. that might, it might be Pentecostal then. Uh, but it's where like everybody all prays at once and you just pray your thing. And so it creates this like big sound of the room because you're all talking at one time. Mm. Um, and that actually is something that I found beneficial because it gets you used to saying prayers out loud. So it gets you used to saying things, but like nobody, literally nobody's listening to you because they're all praying on your own. As a contemplative mm. practice, I think it's completely counterproductive <laughs> because you're all talking over one another. Uh, but it was like a communal prayer thing that uh, I did at the, the camp that I worked at. So I was wondering, because that's what it reminded me of is everybody has a space to say something, but would, if it was a bigger youth group, because you have what, 10 kids? Yeah, we typically, plus leaders, we have about, usually it caps somewhere between 12 or 14 people in the room. Okay, yeah. So then a war prayer would not be good for that because you could hear everything. But in like 
when we would have 50 people at camp in a week, um, ranging from like kindergartners to the college students who were uh, being the counselors, you I mean you had plenty of people and the kids are all happy to be like, I love plants. And so they're just oh, sure. like talking over yeah. things. And so it's fun, but it's, yeah, it's not contemplative. Sorry. That was a, that was a sidebar. Ethan, I, I've, you have- I've never heard that called war prayer. I know oh. I've done that before. I've done that in my, in my uh, youth group days, you know, and, and I, and I'd be like, Oh, okay. You know, but I've never heard it called war prayer. That's interesting. Well, and I can't tell you um, exactly the origin of that phrase, but I would assume that it's a very kind of Southern Baptist church militant feel. <laughs> so it's interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Ethan, do you have a contemplative practice? I know that you've talked about on the pod about um, how theology and like systematic theology, like hits you in your feels. So do you yes. have a, do you have practice that goes along with that or is it just what, what, how does that intersect for you? So for me, um, this is one of the reasons because of my, my kind of love of reading theology and words Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Liturgy becomes a really important thing for me. Um, just because liturgy then is something that I can, uh, this is why I hate really bad liturgy. <laughs> it's actually mm-hmm. one of the reasons why, why you know, since I became a Christian, um, Steve, for a long time, I grew up in the church, but I, I never really believed in it. I was just good at it. And so, mm-hmm. like, I, I was kind of good at doing church stuff. And I had some minor evangelicalism, but but ultimately very minor stuff. Um, but But then when I kind of became a Christian while I was in seminary, I, I really was unable to stomach most of um, kind of like contemporary Christian music or worship mm-hmm. music or things like that, um, precisely because I just look at it as really poorly written liturgy. Mm-hmm. And, and so like for me, like really great liturgy is, is really important to me mm-hmm. um, because of the way I, I, my, 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 the way I read, theology and and the way that affects me kind of spiritually and things like that is very connected to that um the practice that i made so with all that in mind the practice that i maintain even you know that i started in seminary and that i maintain now is that i read uh charles wesley hymns um i have well charles wesley poetry actually i have uh his book of sacred poetry and um and I'll take a, how that's set up is, you know, it'll, he has the, the poem and then right above the poem are the scripture verses that he's sort of pulling from. And, and I'll kind of, I'll kind of read all of that. And it, and it takes me, you know, seven minutes maximum, you know, for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it's, it's a practice that allows me to kind of engage uh, with the words, right? Like, cause that's really, that's really the kind of the main thing for me. I, mm. I, I'm good at silence. Like I can sit in silence and, and, but, but, and think, and I like a lot of that, but um, yeah, yeah, that's what I got. So that's a practice I still maintain. I still do. 
I like that. Steve, I saw the look you gave me. I wrote a paper on Charles Wesley for church history. Oh. And so it was just like, oh, one of the one of the works that not everybody has on their shelves. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Charles Wesley. I think I think he's great. I think he uh, was a hypochondriac who was a drama queen and he, he gives me life. Uh, oh no, you don't know. So Charles had, uh, we talk about John Wesley having his heart strangely warmed and that's kind of the beginning of mm-hmm. method, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but Charles actually had his own personal Pentecost before John had uh, his heart strangely warmed. But Charles had it while being like basically in a sick bed. Who knows what he was actually sick with, but this happened a lot with Charles. And so he was coughing, he had a fever, he felt terrible. And there are people who were like coming to talk to him and ministering to him and taking care of him. And he had a, he had a basically a heart strangely warm moment on Pentecost uh, mm. one day before John had his. So it's, uh, it is both like Charles being so extra, but then also like that extraness leading him to that place of emotional connection before John. Mm. Uh, and I just, I love that. I like Charles is the, takes the backseat a whole lot in Wesleyan talk, but he's got a, he's got a lot. He did also ride through the night to prevent his brother from being married one time. And so that's not his best, but also <laughs> John won great at marriage. So, huh. um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I love both of these things. Um, I'm in a class right now on, um, That's also a research study, but it's a mindfulness practice uh, for Mm -hmm. pastors for stress reduction (laughs) in the United Methodist Church. And um, a lot of it is like it comes, mindfulness itself comes from Buddhism, but there is like, there are the... um, the the same type of roots of it are also in a lot of Christian mystical practice. And so um, we do a lot of focus on the breath. They make a big deal about how breath is very scriptural and um, and they use all of the, the ruah and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That uh, I think the first time I heard it was really profound. And then after that, my like very logical brain took over and was like, yes, I've heard this. God gave us breath. We're breathing. We're all breathing together. Um, but then it's, uh, like it's sitting in your body and like doing body scans and things like that, that have been really important for me, especially coming out of the purity movement, because so much of the purity movement was your body is evil. The flesh is evil. Ignore your body. Your body sends you evil things. Um, and so to like sit with my body and be like, body, you're doing good things. And I appreciate you as part of my existence has been helpful. But a lot of the time I, like, I find myself wanting something deeper to contemplate because a lot of this is, um, you start off with the, like, you exist, you are, you're there and that is good. And that is enough. Uh, and I'm like, okay, good. I've got the first step. Give me the next step. Uh, and I know that's, that's part of my inability to get into the spirit of what they want us to do with the practice which is really to just sit for a little bit, but I need something that's a little bit, I need my brain to be engaged. Otherwise it's just going to go run circles. Uh, but we are supposed to start a, um, a walking prayer this week where you just uh, walk and think about walking and uh, that could be good. So we'll see. Um, but I, I have found, like there, there have been snippets when I've done some like deep theology studying, but I'm like, Ooh, that's good. I'm going to like keep that forever. And that speaks to me, mm. but I don't know how to, 
I don't know how to combine that with contemplative practice because I feel like a lot of the contemplative practice that I'm introduced to is kind of, um, kind of hippie stuff. It is that kind of spiritual, but not religious stuff because we didn't do contemplative practice in any of the churches that I was in. So I only got it from people who are like reconstructing their faith after evangelicalism and stuff like that. And so like this, this is, uh, uh, yeah, this hits a vein with me because, uh, if you can imagine if thinking on the sort of stories that were told about the origins of Protestantism and how it's so Mm -hmm. much of it was like the return to the sources and the central focus on the sermon, right? As mm-hmm. the sort of principal means of God speaking to folk rather than maybe necessarily sacraments, right? It puts a, a, a hugely uh, logocentric trajectory for Protestant churches, uh, which no surprise then that silence in the contemplative tradition is hard for us when we're yeah. so used to having like needing words in some way uh, rather than, trying to find the place where you can let go of some of those words. Yeah. Because those words ultimately will not totally circumscribe who and what God is. Yes. Yeah. I, in my first month at my church, I did a sermon series on these are all of the different main symbols that we use in worship. And I used that so that I could rearrange the liturgy and put the sermon in the place where I think it belongs. Instead Mm. of the sermon being the culmination of the service and the thing that we're all waiting on, I put it back in its place so that we have things to respond to after the sermon. Uh, And I don't know that anybody appreciated the liturgical work that I was doing, but I found it really deeply important. And then when quarantine started, I was like, well, I'm still going to do a whole service because the sermon is not the main thing, right? Like if we're going to worship, I'm going to do a whole service because the liturgy is important and music is important and you're getting just as much out of that. But my people were like, you know, we really just, we just need a message. So just, just film a, film a sermon for us. (laughs) And so that's what I've been doing because I I don't know what else to do. So. On this, on this sort of same area, so speaking, we, we got close to talking about um, sort of grasping and understanding stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it constantly reminds me, and it's one of these things that like, I can never talk about the opening chapter of the Gospel of John without bringing this up to folk, um, at how there's the line that says that like, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness didn't overcome, overcome it. it. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. And the sort of the very interesting poetic play in that where like the word for overcome also means arrest in the way oh. of like grasp something or like you tackle it yeah. to the ground and, and overpower it, right? Hmm. So like the, the semantic range is a bit larger than just um, a sort of power dynamic of two hmm. opposing things clashing, uh, uh, but also includes a... Uh, an epistemological part of it or like it's not only that it couldn't um grasp it and control it it also couldn't understand it yeah yeah uh, which has just constantly been uh, like i said i can't talk about the opening chapter of john without bringing that one up i like that um Yeah, I, so the thing that I have that is similar to that is I, for a class I took at Catholic, I read Gregory of Nyssa's Life of Moses, and yeah, right, so good, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's one of those things where he's doing theology, but he's also, it's almost a contemplative, uh, 
instruction model because like first Moses sees God in the burning bush. Moses sees God in light. He's following this light. He's following this fire, but his real interaction with God is up on the mountain in a cloud of darkness. Mm. And Gregory makes a lot of that, that cloud of darkness and how yeah. the, the, the thing that we think we're is knowing really there's, it's the, it is when you have entered into darkness that you were able to more fully see God, uh, yeah. which is so different from the kind of light dark dynamics that you get in a lot of liturgy and a lot of church mm-hmm. stuff and in a lot of like contemporary Christian songs, right? It just kind of like perpetuates this uh, white things are good and black things are bad. And so there's a way in which when we're doing this kind of contemplative bigger work, we even it comes back to a practical like wake yourself up a little bit and and think about how you're using this language because that white things are good and black things are bad has played into racial dynamics over the centuries Mm. and so there's stuff like that that can make really tangible connections not every time but yeah and i i feel the same way when it comes to uh well it's it it strikes a nerve of mine sort of makes me put on my grumpy face uh, when folk, usually evangelicals of, of various stripes, might have some sort of rough go, rough period in their life or something, and then they read like St. John of the Cross. Um. And just like, all right, I see why you would make the trip to do that. I could see why that's part of it. But like reading The Dark Night of the Soul, like a couple of things to keep in mind. A, it was written for monks, like people dedicated to the lifestyle. Right. In some respects, it's not for you as a person just off the street because it's just too technical as it were. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's quite a lot that goes into it. And then additionally, it's the second book in the series. <laughs> right, yeah. Right? The Ascent to Mount Carmel is him doing the sort of positive theology of you realizing things about God and you making affirmative steps, all the sort of stuff we would ascribe to light. And the dark night of the soul is all the stuff where you're in darkness, which is a sort of unknowing or right. unlearning where you're going, Oh, these things are not quite as straightforward as I thought they were. Right. Yeah. And that's very di- different than, I mean, you could have a dark night of the soul in seminary and like everything in life could be perfectly fine, but now you're realizing that things were not the way you thought they were. And that's, that's very different than uh, my spouse just had cancer and, and I had to watch them go through this. Like it's, there are, there are similarities. I mean, that's going to shake your world too, but it, this is not meant to, um, to comfort you in this time. There's other, like, I would point you to the Psalms before I would point mm-hmm. you to Dark Night of the Soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can sympathize again, this sort of grasping and ungraspingness. It's only on my mind because I've, I've read uh, a book recently on silence in the contemplative tradition that's been really excellent, but also took me a long time to read it because I had to read bits and then just let it simmer for a bit because mm. it was there was just enough stuff going on with it. Um, what was I, the book? Oh, it is called. I think it's just called Silence: A User's Manual, User's Guide. Let me mm. have it here. Um, I didn't want to derail your thought, but I'll, I'll link it in the show notes for people. All right. Okay. Yeah. So it is called Silence, a User's Guide, Volume 1. And I'm just starting Volume 2. Uh, and they are by Maggie Ross, who is an Anglican solitary. Okay. Yeah. And admittedly, fair warning, there are some bits 
where she is absolutely like acerbic and caustic. Like, yeah. There's some bits early where you're just going, okay, maybe this is, you, your rhetoric might be overshadowing your point here. Um, but it, it evens out a bit once you get halfway through. Um, but sorry, this grasping and ungrasping thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was already on my mind. And then a couple of weeks ago, just around and after Easter, uh, some of the lectionary readings came around to week after week, uh, doubting Thomas, mm -hmm. right? okay, you know, doubting in air quotes, um, where the one of the principal moments is Thomas saying, right, if I can touch and put my hand in your side, then I'll believe. Okay, great. So there's a sort of grasping moment. Mm -hmm. And then the very next story is Mary at the tomb and right. what does he say, but don't hold on to me. And this is, yeah. I thought it was this really lovely, like, it's one of these things where when you read both of those stories separated because of they're different stories for different weeks. Mm -hmm. That's a connection you will never make. Yeah. Yeah, I think the Gospel of John really benefits from the time it has to marinate because it's. It, I feel like it's a lot more literary than a lot of the other ones are. Mm. It's doing a lot more with characters and themes and like you can just trace light and darkness throughout the Gospel and that's a, it can be a world-changing experience. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, good stuff. This is why I say that John is my favorite gospel, contrary to what I thought when I moved to Scotland, because I said that John sucked one time when you gave me the, the angriest look. But it, to be fair, I was angry at all of the gospels at that moment in my life. I'm, I'm so sorry. I think often about some of the stuff that I probably said in Rainy Hall, and my gosh. <laughs> we were all own, in that place. <laughs> own it. Own stay, hold, hold on to it. I stand by every single thing I've ever said. That, that's not true. Well, that's, that's not to not say true. that I, I mean, I still think I would affirm most of the things I said. It's mm -hmm. just maybe not the way in which I said it, which on that. So you mentioned this when you're talking about the life of Moses. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you got close to it rather. And it's, it's a, an insight that I think has been lost mm, post reformations, but I don't know. I'm shooting from the hip on that one. Um, that, form and content are united, right? So like mm -hmm. method and practice actually joined together, which mm -hmm. is what Nissa was doing when he was like, he wasn't just telling you the story or the interpretation of Moses' life, but it was also instruction for how you yourself yeah. continue to practice. Yeah, because also it's one of those things that was written for monks. Like it's, it is part of his work that's written for people who are doing their religious thing. Mm. Um, as in religious order. And yeah, yeah. And that's the same thing for um, people who read Bonhoeffer's discipleship or the cost of discipleship. That's mm. written for seminarians who are like going through this intense training period together. Mm. Um, and so it's not, well, like it's, it's fairly accessible. Uh, it's not meant for your average everyday person who has a different job to go back to, you know, mm. and I, I don't know who have I, I've had a fight with one of the two of you about going back, like needing to have religious orders. We had it on the podcast, Ethan. It was okay. the one where I said there was no ethical way to live and we should all just go be monks and nuns. Uh, right, right. Because, like, how do you live both in the world and also fulfill all of, like, what Christians should be? And so a lot of times I just want to go go run away. Uh, and I, I wonder a lot about that because you have these great um, 
contemplative things that are also like theologically rich that as we said a couple of times are meant for people who are doing this intense study they're meant for people who've adopted a new mm. way of being and do we have to do that to benefit from it like in in what way should our spiritual or contemplative practice like how big of a role should that play in our lives? And do we need to have that in order to get some of the theology? Well, so actually, <laughs> here we go. Actually, um, so this, these, Joe, I like these questions a lot. These questions are things that I've been sort of thinking about as I have been thinking about what I'm studying, you know, in school or what I will be studying and researching. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, because mostly because I'm I'm planning on working with a lot of Evagrius, Uh when I yeah I, I wondered if Steve how Steve would feel about that. Uh, yeah, I'm planning on working with a lot of Evagrius and his theologies of the passions and mm. and and Steve. I want to draw that stuff into conversation uh, with uh, contemporary thinkers on like powers and principalities and oh and, okay and, and the way in which. Um, you know, maybe these these uh, uh, the the powers inflict passions on people, and and mm. and and as part of their mo and part of what they do. Yeah, Evagrius is great for that. I, I yeah, it's been really great reading him. But what's what what the the kind of the other side of it that's making me think is, um, you know, perhaps a, a turn towards, um. Uh, uh, religious orders or, or this kind of way of being humans and, and people that, uh, you know, the monks and, and, and nuns and, and folks like that have sort of latched on to, yeah. it might be the way, it might be something like how we need to uh, um, be in the world now, particularly if, if powers and principalities really are inflicting you know, the, the passions upon us that, that needs to be something that we need, and now need to take more seriously for everybody, not just, and not just in terms of we all need to join an order, but like maybe for everybody, because I think on the other side of that, I think that um, uh, all from my reading, you know, and I'm no expert right now at all, but, but all what um, like these orders are, are just another way of being human beings. It's it's a form of being human, mm -hmm. and and so we can we can sort of say that we're that every human being already does contemplative practice. Like every human being already does, um, you, you know, ha lives in a particular human order. Mm -hmm. We're already doing that. That's just sort of a part of what it means to be a human being. Yeah. Um, it's just that maybe not everybody is uh, necessarily aware of what order they're in or, or, or how they're doing it, things like that. Yeah. Um, and so there's a sense in which, uh, particularly as I like read a little more about the passions and like kind of think about that, there's a sense in which we've already been trained. We're already undergoing training on how to be human beings now. Mm -hmm. And we all kind of are. Mm -hmm. and have been and so this idea of you know well maybe we all need to turn towards uh uh religious orders maybe we all need to become amish or maybe we all need to become 
you yeah. know, maybe, maybe we all need to become Franciscans or, or, or whatever. Um, yeah. Is, is really, is, is an interesting point because what, what we're really saying is the current way we have been trained to be human beings is not working. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't really, it doesn't really, uh, fulfill the coming kingdom. It doesn't, mm. it doesn't promote human pro, you know, um, um, I'm going to say prosperity. And I think you know what I mean by that. Like human right. flourishing is really what mm. I mean. Abundant um, life. Abundant life. Right. And, and, um, and, and so the turn towards, um, uh, uh, disciplines or, pra- or, or intentional practices, um, might need to happen precisely because what we really need is to undergo, uh, retraining. Um, maybe, <laughs> maybe something like that. I don't know. Because yeah, I, like, like, and, and so, and so Joe, so, so a couple podcasts ago, uh, we talked about, um, uh, uh, the way in which like some of these social structures. So like, we talked for length about gender just a couple of weeks ago, but right, like with our mini in our mini so, but like we talk about all these other things too, like stuff that I would call powers and principalities. Um, we talked at length about how one of the things I think is that powers and principalities have this really unique ability to craft human beings to like, mm. to like mm-hmm. create human people and, and, and shape them and, and shape us and, Mm. and, and form us into humans, you know, to a certain kind of human. Mm. I I think that's really what I'm getting at when I now reflect on what does it mean to be retrained as a human being? Because Mm. if these, if, 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 uh, (laughs) if the power known as McDonald's, um, inflicts passions upon people and trains people to be human in a certain way. Hmm. Um, and maybe we call that pow- that passion that, that the power of McDonald's imposes on people gluttony. Maybe we can call it that. Um, then the, 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 the training, the retraining that human beings would have to go through in order to be free of that power, in order to, um, uh, be liberated from that passion might be uh, something like um, practicing an ethic of um, um, moderation. I'm being, I'm being. That's that's kind of obvious, but you know what I right. mean. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and and we'd have, but but like I'm not just talking about, you know, it's on the individual to control themselves. I, I mean, we we have to have a fundamentally retraining. Mm-hmm. on how to be a human being because the way we are human um, is bad. And, and from the, this kind of Christian way of, of the, seeing the world, um, the way we are human is being influenced by the forces of wickedness. Mm-hmm. Steve, you are raring to jump in. <laughs> I have in, so man. many thoughts and feelings to dust off an old one. Yeah, so many thoughts and feelings. <laughs> um, so I have sort of three things that I'll trace together and, and um, I think put us in an even better place than the great place we're already in. Uh, first off, amongst other things, when it comes to orders, like if nothing else, one of the, I think, potential benefits is like they give validity to singular people 
in that like it, it helps cut against the idea in some strands of like purity culture where like the sort of trajectory is that humans get married and have kids. Right. And amongst other things, orders are one way of saying, no, you can live a fully valid human life and not be part of a couple. Mm-hmm. And like, that seems like that would help quite a few people. Right. Whom that might, might weigh on them quite heavily that they feel like they're not in a relationship or you know, all that, everything sort of in that area. Um, yeah, which I think is, is, it's unfortunate when I see it with some folk. Um, yeah, it's a much better solution than the solution the lobster comes up with. What's that? Have you seen that, seen that movie? Yeah, you've seen that movie. Oh, 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 the film. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Listeners, if you haven't seen that movie, it is a, it's a trip. I'll also link to it in the show description. <laughs> it is, yeah. Well, so, um, so second thing on that, because we were talking about retraining, which I totally uh, agree with and sympathize with. And it brings me back to, again, one of these sort of fundamental realizations I had in my undergraduate um, was that like the Greek word for repentance, uh, when you sort of take it apart etymologically, has to deal with changing your mind, hmm. which is like the one thing that like is said all the time. You go, oh yeah, repentance is about changing your mind. And then some people might even go a step further and they go, yeah, but it's more about, it's not just changing your mind, but it's also changing the way you act. Um, mm-hmm. But the step that goes even further after that, right, on the assumption that at the time in the New Testament, the, the sort of what was in the air was this notion that like the world is changeable and in flux and mind is unchangeable and sort of stable, right? Um, if that's the case, if that holds, then to some extent, the New Testament's description or use of the word metanoia, like is absurd to the culture that it was in because mm. they go, well, how do you, how do you change something that can't be changed? Mind isn't supposed to change. Form isn't right. supposed to change. Uh, which, yeah, I, um, that kind of, I'll say paradox, but not contradiction. Mm-hmm. Right. That sort of paradox, I think helps prove the limit for like, Oh, maybe why, why, do, why can't mind change? Yeah. Yeah. Why, why do we have to say that? So yeah, that, that keys into this retraining um, element or, or the way I, I address it with my youth. When we start to talk about Exodus, for example, like the story of the Exodus, the theological point that I start to draw from it is that between the Exodus and the 40 years in the desert, uh, I, I have jokingly referred to as the, the great rehumanization. Hmm. Because it's a moment of, again, this is on a theological read more so than a sort of straightforward literal read of it. You have God taking a people group who are slaves in a sort of subhuman condition as such, right? They're not free. Um, and taking them out of a toxic environment into a place of, well, into the desert with all the metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about the desert um, so that they can sort of deal with the toxic stuff right in that relative silence and try and process and relearn what it means to be a full human as it were yeah and the gift of the law fits in really well with that of like as you as you come out of a toxic place you're gonna need new standards you're gonna need a new way of being now it's Mm -hmm. gonna take you a while to figure out how to live into that new way of being because it is in fact new but like 
you, there is a rebuilding that has to happen. Like that's my big complaint about uh, the seminary that Ethan and I went to is they're very good at telling you about how to tear apart your faith and tear apart your belief structures, but there's no scaffolding to build back up upon. So you Mm. just leave with all the pieces and like systematics is supposed to kind of help you put that back together. But I don't know that it's given the attention that it needs to do that. Mm. Um, but like, I think, I think you need that. I think if you're going to tear something down, you have to be given help and guidance in a way of building it up more sturdily. Otherwise you're, you don't know how to build. You just know the pieces you have now, you know, it's, um, anyway. Yeah. But I like that. I like the idea that like 40 years is necessary because we, we think that, oh, we've dealt with the bad thing and therefore we're fixed, but no, there is a process of, Mm -hmm. of retraining yourself without whatever it is that had been causing you harm. And that's why I think you hear a lot of that in therapy too, is that like you have to be patient with yourself and it's not just, you can't go to one therapy session and you're cured. You have to realize what you need to do. And then there's work to do to build yourself back up. I mean, I think about the parable of Matthew where, um, you get rid of a demon, but then, and you sweep your house and you get it clean, but you haven't put anything else in there. And so the demon is just going to come back with more friends to a cleaner house. Mm. And so there is both the, the uninstalling of what was there before. And then the reinstalling of something good. Like you, you need to have that. And that is retraining yourself. It is building, putting in a good practice in the place of the other one. That's why like white knuckling quitting alcohol is so hard because it's fulfilling a role in your life it's got something that it's doing and until you have something that replaces that that role that alcohol plays in your life all you're going to be doing is trying real hard not to have a drink when you want one and you really need that thing to fill the space that alcohol was filling Hmm. to go all to go all program on people yeah Yeah. no and i i yeah that all makes sense to me that all seems consistent and follows and as accurate um but it's still i'm also reminded so um joe and i were both in a science and religion program (sighs) what a program that was right gosh (laughs) (laughs) it was excellent i loved every bit of it um but it's given me tools and ideas that i'm still unpacking and figuring out what to do with them and you even had a master's degree going into that program. Like you had done studying the stuff before, whereas I was coming from my undergrad in astronomy and like had never written a paper longer than 11 pages. And that one was on the music of Oklahoma. So mm-hmm. we, we got to this at very different places. I had to learn how to read scholastically and theologically while doing all the same type of stuff. So if you're unpacking things still, I feel very, um, uh, I don't know. I feel a lot better about the fact that there's stuff from that that I'm still confused about. <laughs> well, good. I'm happy that that's the case, that that makes you feel better. Because it, it, it's, well, it's, it's, for example, amongst other things, it's like some of the back and forth I see in at least the Gospel of John between like Jesus and the authorities, Jesus and what's you know, like the Jews, which is unfortunate when we start to put a lot of the anti-Semitic stuff there, because that does not belong in that from its context. But there's almost an instance where like you have Jesus not only restoring people back up to where they should have been, those who are marginalized being brought in, mm-hmm. but also taking the people who are too large for their place. Mm-hmm. And cutting back to be like, no, no, what are you doing? This is ludicrous. Stop it. Right. 
I'm going to empty out the court of the Gentiles. And they're like, oh, oh okay, right. Very intense. <laughs> and, oh, where was I going with that? Sorry, the science and religion thing. Oh, yeah, I wonder the extent to which when we talk about retraining and repentance and all the sort of Christian lingo to do with that, what connections that actually has with sort of later developments in scientific method, for example, about revisability. Yeah, yeah. Like, where did that come from? Uh, it seems very interesting how much those ideas play together. So that I think it's ultimately a lot, I think we're, we're all starting to realize that it's really unhelpful to have a hard and fast distinction between like hard sciences and the humanities. Right. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I, I think that um, that's often when I'm approaching science and religion with the congregation now, I, mm you have to do this work of science doesn't think it's perfect. So even though like science has certain, uh, certain claims on reality that we have to acknowledge, right? Like the science is testable. Science gives us new insights. Science uh, leads to medical science, which helps keep you safe during a pandemic. So listen to them. Uh, but at the same time, you have to be like, you know, even even Newton, even Galileo, even all of these people who we learn their theories and textbooks aren't exactly right because then Einstein comes around and we have to rethink how the world functions. Mm. And, and science does that. And the more you're willing to say we could have been wrong or we are wrong, let's find something new and closer to right. Like mm. that, that gives you the freedom to do that in science and that should give you the freedom to then do that with your faith. Like the thing that you were taught in elementary school about how gravity uh, is pulling you to the center of the earth doesn't work in space. And so you have to relearn how gravity works as you grow older and expand your universe. Why mm. on earth wouldn't you do the same thing with faith? Mm. And I think that goes to this kind of contemplative stuff is that um, if you grew up in a church that told you that it had all of the answers that never allowed you to learn how to get the answers for yourself, then you're completely lost when the world goes haywire and you end up reading Dark Night of the Soul with no idea of what's going on. But if you start out by knowing that we're going to learn piece by piece and you're going to learn things that are wrong and that's okay, you just have to retrain and repent and, and mm. use those in a kind and generous way and not in a you're wrong and you're awful kind of way. Right. Yeah, you don't call kids dumb for not understanding quantum mechanics because they're children and they have a lot more to learn. And there, I mean, there's a lot to talk about with the, the spiritual milk and spiritual meat metaphor that Paul uses. Is that yeah. like, you have to get ready for bigger things. And we think just because we've aged, we're ready for them, but we're not. There's work that has to happen. <laughs> Man, my one of my favorite bite, uh, metaphors in that regard. So this is what I used with, uh, well, again, my teens and even some adults that like um, try and think about your faith or your mindset as a bicycle and be like, mm. if you're riding a bicycle that's made for a six-year-old, like no kidding, you're going to get frustrated when you can't go as far as you'd like, as efficiently as you'd like. Like right. at some point, you're just going to metaphorically throw the bicycle away and start walking. Uh, so it's like maybe there's something worth it for folk, religious and non uh, taking the time to examine whatever their sort of faith structures or mindset is to make sure that it actually fits what they're trying to do with it. Yeah. 
Yeah. But I think they also need to know what they want to do with it. And I think that that direction is also gone Mm. as well. Cause there's, I, I wonder how to say this. Like the country club church of the 1950s is where church is mostly a social organization. And Mm. so you're not, you are going to the type of church you're going to, to meet the people that you need to meet in order to live in, in your society. But that has very little to do with growing in Christian practice and being a better disciple and all this kind of, when people talk about church growth stuff, they talk about growing disciples over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I, growing a disciple is not just getting people to read through the Bible or come to more church meetings together. It -hmm. is getting them to own that for themselves and to really work out their faith on their own. And I don't think that people are prepared to work out their faith, their faith on the own. The people who want to do that, we send them to seminaries and make them be pastors. And that's not fair because you need lay people who have done this work too. Yes. Which? Oh, sorry. No, I'm just I'm say I'm agreeing. I hadn't talked in a while, so I just wanted to agree. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything to jump in with? Because I was gonna pitch it to you anyway. I, I don't understand quantum mechanics, and I'm not an and I'm not a child. Right. And <laughs> sorry. So, no, no, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But, so there's not a necessity for everybody to understand quantum mechanics. It's there if you want to learn it. It's mm. it's fascinating, uh, but you don't need it. But I would I would argue that everybody needs to do this kind of um, the spiritual work. Like, like I, I say that to make it more uh, interfaith instead of just Christian focused. Oh, but sure. I think that, Everybody needs to understand what their meaning making system is and how it influences who they are. We Mm. can't just leave that for people who go into specific religious training programs to work these things out. Like the people in the pews need to sit down and understand, oh, I really do think that men should be in charge of everything and that's a part of my world. And now I need, either I choose to tear that down or I double down on it, you know, but you need to be cognizant of what you're doing and it needs to be yours. It can't just be what was handed to you. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, the phrase came up, and I forget where I got this. It was somewhere between my brother and my conversations. My brother is also a youth minister, actually in Pennsylvania. Um, but we have somehow settled on the idea that um, it is not our job necessarily to tear down unbiblical faith, but rather to build up biblical faith in people. Mm. By which we mean, like, we sort of take it as given that life as it goes in the normal course of events will probably do just fine in demolishing poor faith structures, poor sort of ways of meaning-making models, right? Because we'll, we'll run into events that will make us challenge those. Mm-hmm. Any number of events that you could think of, the death of a loved one, serious illness, um, seeing a horse being beaten in public. Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> I was wondering where that one was going. We're not talking about pears, so it's not a no, government. No, no, no. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, we, we haven't gotten onto my, my diatribe about pears. Yeah. Well, my Ian diatribe. Likes to say, Ian likes to say somebody stole a pear a couple thousand years ago, and now none of us can have sex. And that's Christian theology. <laughs> but was it the pear that was important? No, no, we won't. <laughs> We won't get into that. No. It, it, this, this whole area that we're talking about, though, reminds me, too, of the phrase that 
it's attributed to Karl Rahner, but I don't know where he might have written it, where he said that the Christian of tomorrow will either be a mystic or not at all. Mm. Which I can feel the resonance for that. I can appreciate that that, um, I think there's truth to that, but I can also recognize that I think we have, mystic has been used too loosely. Yeah, I would agree with that. about mysticism, you just think it's sort of hand waviness and like there's nothing solid or stable about it. Mm-hmm. Reading Richard Rohr or something. Oh, Richard Rohr is not that bad, Ethan. He's pretty bad. He's not that bad. I met him. He was like, get out of my fucking way. And then I was like, ooh, a mystic. And he didn't like that. No, <laughs> no, I'm, that's a made up story completely. Um, no, I know. Richard Rohr is probably not that bad, I guess. I, I sympathize, though, with the tension there. Right? Because this is, no, no, because like this is, again, I think about this stuff way too much. Like, that's okay. Um, uh, and I think Joe has heard me make this argument before. Um, but, you know, the, I think it's worth asking a question. At which point, when we're trying to disentangle these ideas, when we're starting to pull them apart, um, when does that tension become too great and it snaps? And there's yes. there are loads of Christological debates about this in the early centuries, where they're going, how closely or distantly related is the humanity and the divinity of Christ? Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah, Ethan and I had an I, argument yeah. in an episode that hasn't dropped yet about uh, whether living in the tension is is the right thing in all circumstances. Because sometimes the right answer is in front of you, right? Like you don't have to live mm. in the tension uh, of, you know, if white supremacy is bad, do we really need to live in the tension between white supremacy and not white supremacy? But at the mm. same time, when people have embedded white supremacy and they don't know it yet, you kind of have to live in the tension of them realizing and getting a better practice like you one does not fully repent of that overnight because it it's sneaky like that but Ethan, what were you gonna say oh i don't know i i agree with myself when i said that i don't think we need to live in the tension all the time (laughs) (laughs) the tension Um, is a part of our world yeah no no i understand that i do i i think that um uh, I have two thoughts. So let me start. Let me start with a thought that's actually cogent to the conversation. Um, I know that for me, I deeply dislike. It's not that I dislike mysticism. That, that's not what I mean. I I am not a mystic at all. Like that's not really. I I'm very suspicious of um, things like that. Um, personally, m- mostly because I uh, not because I think that we can all arrive at perfect knowledge of God using reason. That's, that's not what I think. But um, I um, uh, tend to find a lot of mystics, uh, the difference between a lot of uh, really um, popular kind of contemporary mystics and me is a really good publicist. Um, and, and so I, <laughs> I tend to be like, Oh wow, you got some real good PR representatives, you know, to really sell people on the witchcraft. Um, but which is, you know, I guess my own problem. Uh, but but like I, you know, I I tend to be more interested in um, uh, honest reflection and well reasoned arguments, and mm. not and not um, you know, and and like 
moral and ethical and and affective like i it's not that i'm it's not that i'm against affective conversation or arguments but i but i am sort of against a um um alchemical arguments <laughs> where where somehow there's this uh like this is why i don't like richard Rohr ultimately where where i i i first ask i'm like well, how much money is is richard Rohr's mysticism making him and then the next question i have to ask myself is you know what is what what exactly is the end game you know is is it working are are people uh, coming to deep faith in Jesus Christ has white supremacy been defeated because of Richard Rohr's work? You know, because I'm I'm at the same time more interested in in as a Wesleyan. I think this is fair. Like I'm I'm more interested in the holiness of life than I am in uh, anyone's uh, terribly uh, important I- encounter with Jesus Christ. Mm. Oh, well, I, yeah. I oh, is that is that fully Wesleyan? Because I think that uh, no, it's definitely not fully Wesleyan. But but I also don't care. Um, well, you know, <laughs> you it and then throw it away. It's, what did, what just happened? What um, do you mean? What just happened? So so like for me, like I uh, you know I have there's a person in my life who um uh, loves Richard Rohr. That's not why I don't like Richard Rohr, but but reads a lot of stuff like that and. And, and, and for this person, um, if for her entire thing is, um, I want to know the divine in more and more intimate ways, just more and more and more. And I respect that. Like, I want to know God deeply. That's a big driving force in my life. It's why I love theology. It's why, it's why it, it, you know, it, it really hits me and why I read silly books on shelling like I did last night for no reason other than. Who I is shelling? I saw this tweet. He's a, German, he's a German idealist philosopher. He's a contemporary of Hegel. Oh. Um, yeah. And the only reason I wanted to read shelling was because Bogekov quotes from shelling and I love Bogekov and it's just all, it's just all weird. But this woman who's in my life, um, who, who speaks this way, uh, also, uh, is totally fine with her husband being a multimillionaire. What you know a multimillionaire? You know, I do, uh, and is and is also totally fine with um, uh, um, questioning things like vaccines or whether or not you know poor folks uh, should uh, um, be assisted by the government or you know stuff like that. And so for her, like I look at that and I go, okay, well. Um, who cares? Who cares if she considers herself a mystic? Like who, who gives, who gives a crap? I don't care. Hmm. You know, uh, and, and now we can say, you know, maybe a corrective might, might be, well, has she really met God? And I'm like, well, of course she hasn't. Well, of course she hasn't really met God. Like, but, but well, then who again, among us has who among, well, but okay, then let her go. Why critique her? This is where Joe and I argue, Steve. Oh. <laughs> this, is, this is the thing. Like, like, I, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I guess we could, one of our uh, uh, alternative titles to our podcast is Liberal Shame. Oh my God. That's, that's one, that's one uh, thing in which we feel bad for feeling good about ourselves. And oh. then, and then the oh. other. Uh, oh, Augustinian. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing that I sometimes toy with is we could just rename the podcast. Who's to say, 
the podcast where we critique nothing but ourselves. Well, um, that's all. That's all we can do, right? Judge not, lest you be judged. So, you're right. The church should have no political opinion. <laughs> you're right. Um, so, Jesus so to right. go back to go back to this lady, I uh, I think that. Richard Rohr, to me, is uh, a a baby step into the world of mysticism, right? Like, I think the benefit of Richard Rohr is that he makes the idea of growing in contemplative faith accessible for people. And so I think that you can have, I mean, Richard Rohr is like peanut butter toast, right? Like, you could have Richard Rohr every single day. Not peanut butter toast. I love peanut butter toast. No, I I do too. It's fine. But if all you ever learn to make is peanut butter toast, then you don't understand all that there is out there that you could be having. And so the the corrective for her is not to, to bash her desire for something deeper. It is to introduce her to other voices besides this one person. I mean, that's, that's a big complaint against Augustine, right? Is that if Augustine were just one person in the Christian canon that we read from the same amount that like people read from Gregory of Nyssa, then it would be fine. Like you would be like, okay, you got some weird thoughts about sex, but like, we'll handle it. But instead Augustine is this giant and we don't hear these other voices. And so we get shaped into even the malformed parts of Augustinian theology. A giant for us Protestants. Yes. There yeah. we go. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Luther. <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> Sorry. But, but I, really, who's, but who's to say? Maybe it's okay he's a giant. Well, I don't want to critique Augustine too much, that, lest oh I be judged. Fucking God. That's <laughs> not what I mean. <laughs> I think it is fair though. You I mean because we we end up conflating. I think it ends up being conflated quite a lot. Where we people who, for example, would want to bash Augustine's influence, right, and just be like, oh, and they sort of shake their fist to the sky about how much influence Augustine has had over the course of the tradition and the Western um, canon. Um, but that is actually a different thing from just the bare fact that Augustine is a figure. Right? Mm-hmm. We can shake our fist at the sky, but it nonetheless is the case that traces of Augustine and the later receptions of Augustine right. are just woven in. That is a given with which we have to operate. And at one level, if we just shake our fists at it, ain't going to do anything. Sure. Yeah. Right. And I, and I get that too. But mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the need to diversify your reading. That I, in, when it comes to mystical like quote-unquote mystical thought today i think a lot of the popular stuff comes from comfortable white people or people Mm -hmm. that we have now coded as being white because they line up with the comfortable white people today instead of people like going and reading thurman or like reading cone in a way that's going to change you you know like or or digging into any good womanist thought i mean there's or like there are contemplative practices from people in very different situations that if you, if you read them, if you engage in them, if you let them change you and let them change your practice and call you to repentance, then like, that's going to, that's going to do great stuff. But I think you have to do that 
in order for it to really sink into your system and not become something that you just shout about on Twitter, then you need to sit with it in an almost contemplative kind of way. You have to chew on it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that people who want to raise up these voices on the margins aren't really willing to sit with these voices on the margins because they're going to make them uncomfortable. Yes. Which is like, so when I, when I make the pitch to people about reading older figures in the Christian tradition, I'll usually say something like, why don't we read some of these old, dead, not actually white people? Yeah. Because there's loads of them. Like, so many. Yeah, but then people get uncomfortable and, and they don't well, want to think about race because race doesn't matter. I don't see race. And... But that discomfort, like that is worked in. Like that's sort of baked into the nature of the case that like, yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable and that's okay. Like life should not be merely pain avoidance right yes there's a there's a reference to dune i can make here but we won't do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i think that's true um and, and i think that maybe maybe to kind of have a last thought because you've been talking for an hour and a half um people avoid systematic theology because they think it's going to be painful and they think it's going to be more than they can handle. And so they don't, they don't dig into whatever is there just in the same way that a lot of people don't want to sit with themselves because they don't want to think about the pain that's there too. And a lot of the shallowness in our faith comes from our lack of, um, our lack of a desire to interact with difficult things. And I think one of the, one of the first steps you have to do in growing in discipleship is saying that I am, I am willing to encounter difficulty and I'm willing to encounter pain because I know that this must be felt and dealt with and, and engaged with. Otherwise I'm just going to stay here on my tricycle. That's not going to get me anywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. So what we're saying is uh, we need to try harder on everything. No. That's not no, I'm, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to be patronizing. <laughs> like that, that I'm not, I promise. Like, like that we need to try harder to engage with our faith and with the way our faith interacts with, you know, ourselves and other people and, and that, you know, we need to be mindful of it. I'm not, I'm, I'm, yes, I promise. I'm not being. I'm not being silly. No, oh, okay. That's a it, that's a big thing for me in therapy. Is that I my solution to every problem is just to try harder. When the solution to some problems is to stop trying for a second, so you can figure out what's going on. And this sure. is why I'm like I'm uncomfortable with a bit of the language too of trying harder with it because amongst other things that that rings a lot of bells in the back of my head to do with everything surrounding works righteousness stuff, right? right. Works righteousness talk, where um, it seems like there's maybe something, maybe it's more accurate to say that we need to have a better sense of our intention mm. with the spiritual life and that intention being followed through on, yes, but re recognizing that yeah, there's something to not only our attempts to grasp at a deeper spiritual life or grasp at the nature of God, but also to be willing and to learn how to let go so that we might receive from God in God's self. Right? Yeah. If we're too busy trying to hold on, then yeah, we're not going to be able to, to we can't be given stuff because we're trying to hold on too tightly. Uh, so it takes a bit of 
unknowing, unlearning. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's the piece of it too. I think it is both to use that, uh, the phrase that we hear all the time, heard all the time at Wesley Theological Seminary, you have to be intentional about things and be authentic and genuine about it. But like, honestly, you do have to, you have to acknowledge what's there uh, and have to be thoughtful about where you want to go and you have to have a place that you want to go. But on that on that ongoing like lifelong journey to knowing the fullness of God, there are both periods of striving forward and reevaluating and doing things. And there are periods of sitting still and receiving. And both of those are good things and both of them are necessary. It's almost like there's a tension that we have to live with. Yes. But with that, that tension. So this came up earlier uh, because there's tension are two things that, um, are pulling away from each other or that we think are pulling away from each other. Mm-hmm. But there's also the tension of two things being brought together, mm. which I think, I think there is quite a lot of value to speak about that when we're talking, for example, Christologically, then with all of the ramifications that has for how we think about spirituality, theology, liturgy, etc. Like to think, all right, well, what is it if we want to say that instead it's not that, that Jesus is bringing in the person of Jesus. We have the sort of, not just the humanity, but the created world being mm-hmm. close to God in a way that is keeping those things too close together mm. rather than trying to like fly apart from each other. Right. And like in that is, is where salvation is, which I think is. Mm. Whatever oh. we mean when we say salvation. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, that's mm-hmm. another episode. Oh man. <laughs> But I like this. I think this was a great conversation. Ooh, uh, yeah, thank you. yeah, we're going to have to have you back for, we, we can have more other theology talks because I would <laughs> love to talk about salvation. It, it would be good. I don't think we've done a mini set on salvation fully yet. So uh, Yeah, I don't think so. All right. Well, Ethan, do you want to sign us off? Sure, sure. Friends, this has been another episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan, Joe, and Steve, and we will see you next time. All right, there we go. Yeah, that was good.